welcome to the House of Lords podcast. This month I speak to Baroness Morgan Coates about the new digital fraud committee that she is chairing, plus she spills the beans on who asks for harder questions, MPs or members of the Lords. And I speak to Baroness Smith of Basildon about her role as the leader of the opposition in the House of Lords and we hear about some of the famous guests that have come visiting. Welcome to our March episode. We're getting close to the end of the session here in Parliament, so there's a lot taking place in the House of Lords. Yeah, that's one of the things I discussed with Baroness Smith later, actually. Very busy at the moment. There's a lot of long sittings. Have there ever been as many bills as this going through the Lords at once? Probably be wise of me to say probably. I mean, I think I think a few points really on this. It's towards the end of the session, so um, there tend to be later sittings towards the end of sessions because government wants to get all its legislation through. Obviously, bills will fall at the end of the session unless there's a carryover motion to enable Parliament to pick them up again without starting all over again in the new session. And to do so, sometimes uh, to get bills through, that is, sometimes governments will remove parts of bills to get the less contentious parts through. You mentioned about the late sittings, and it's certainly true that members have been speaking a lot in the chamber recently about the number of late sittings and um, how late they've gone recently. There's been quite a few that have gone past midnight, for example. Probably to, to, to provide some balance on this, really, some will argue that the government is expecting too much of Parliament, is trying to push too much through on its agenda. Others will say that peers are not showing enough restraint in the length of their speeches and the number of amendments, and that's why the House is having to sit so long and so late. It's probably fair to say as well that the government would argue that because of Brexit and then COVID that there's a lot of legislation that's been put on pause for the last few years, so it just wants to get things done really. It's also been a busy time for committees as several start their inquiries into topics like adult social care, the Family Act and digital fraud. Um, I recently spoke to Baroness Morgan of Coates about the new committee looking at fraud and here's what she had to say. Hi, I'm Nikki, Baroness Morgan of Coates, and I'm currently the chair of the House of Lords Select Committee on the Fraud Act 2006 and digital fraud. Nikki, thank you for joining us today. As you say, you are the chair of the new Fraud Act 2006 and the Digital Fraud Committee. Why has the committee been set up now? Well, as you know, the House of Lords sets up a couple of ad hoc committees each year. And I think that this was chosen as a topic because of the scale of fraud. Uh, in our accounts for 42% of all crime against individuals, and it's the most commonly experienced crime in England and Wales. And obviously the 2006 Act is now quite a long time ago, and I think it's right that we should be examining whether it's out of date, given that so much fraud is now uh, internet enabled and, and cyber enabled. So we're going to do post legislative scrutiny on that as well. I you know it's also one of those areas that is just attracting more and more attention, both because of potential fraud in government COVID loan schemes, but also obviously the scale of fraud being perpetuated against individuals you know, who are bank customers or we've all had those SMS text messages that say you've got a, a Royal Mail parcel to collect or you've got an HMRC refund. And, you know, in your heart of hearts, that's not true. But I, I think probably lots of people listening will have either thought twice or even potentially have clicked on that link and then discover that they've been scammed. You've had four sessions so far hearing from experts and representatives from industry. What, what themes have emerged so far 
Well, I think the really interesting thing has been uh, the growth in what's called authorised fraud. And that means basically, sadly, it's because we as citizens have not asked ourselves those questions about whether we should click on the link. And the fraudsters apply very clever behavioural techniques and nudges. They'll often perhaps make a phone call when we're at our busiest during the day or they'll um, obviously send out you know, lots of, of, of messages, for example, or uh, manage to spoof somebody else's identity. There's this growth of, for example, mum and dad fraud on, on WhatsApp, where, you know, you'll get a, a message from someone, you know, who sounds a bit like your, your child or, or somebody uh, saying, look, I've run out of money. Can you transfer this, for example? So the, that's the authorised nature of fraud, which is coming through in the evidence we've heard so far. I think also this apparent permissive culture. So I think fraud has perhaps not been taken as seriously as other types of crime for quite a long time, both in terms of if government schemes are put in place, the sort of fraud allowance is made, but also the other theme that's coming through is, is there sufficient police attention and resource and capability? You know, this is a, a national security issue. So is it right that fraud is often dealt with by individual police forces? And then I think the last thing is the need for a whole system response. You know, the internet companies need to be involved, the telecoms companies, obviously the government, the police, the National Crime Agency. So we're testing whether, in fact, there is that whole system response in put, being put in place. And is it working? One of the witnesses you had, I think, to start with was Lord Agnew, who hit headlines with this very issue for resigning up a dispatch box. What kind of things did he tell the committee? So he was saying, for example, that in the business department pre-COVID, there were only two people uh, who were um, sort of uh, experienced in dealing with fraud, for example. And he just could not get Treasury officials and Cabinet Office officials to work together, both in when they were designing the schemes to think about, you know, how they might be uh, fraudulently used, uh, but also when they obviously realised that there was a, uh, an issue in making sure that tackling that fraud was really important. Now, you know, I think Lord Agnew, I mean, that was probably one of the most memorable resignations that the House of Lords has, has seen. So we were very grateful to him for his evidence. And I know he's been giving evidence to a number of other committees as well. So, you know, I think this is a, a moment whereby actually probably both houses of parliament are going to be saying to the government, to the police and others, this is such an important issue. It is ruining people's lives. It has to be given appropriate national attention. And because of that, the effect on all of us, um, there's obviously an opportunity for people to submit information to the committee, which the call for evidence is open at the time of recording and uh, people need to respond by the 22nd of April 2022. Who, who do you want to hear from? Are there particular sectors or individuals We'd like to hear from everybody. We'd particularly like to hear from uh, those who have uh, sadly been uh, defrauded, so victims or those who support uh, victims. And we're going to do some outreach activity as well. We're going to, uh, we'd like to, to meet victims um, uh, and, and ask them if they um, want to share their experiences. And I think that's the other thing is fraud is often one of those areas that people feel slightly embarrassed about admitting that it's happened. But we really, really want to hear the different ways that, that perhaps uh, people have fallen foul of these fraudsters. We are really interested in hearing about the different channels that fraud is perpetuated through, so particularly the internet and telecoms companies, for example, organisations that um, have obviously perhaps been able to combat this. We want to hear from people who understand about behavioural techniques, uh, for example, that can be used to encourage all of us to be more sceptical about the messages that we uh, receive. So uh, we, no, we're going to hear from everybody. We're going to obviously be talking to regulators. We're going to be talking to the police themselves uh, and the, the companies uh, involved. Ultimately, we want to, we want to recommend some real practical steps that are going to make a difference. So if people have got thoughts on this, you can find out more on our Twitter page, which is hlfraudact.com. 
and um, I'm sure via the House of Lords website too. Speaking of social media, and, and you mentioned some of the examples of the kind of messages we've all received and fraudulent advertising. Mm. Um, the government has obviously announced platforms who have a duty of care to protect users from fraud. How do you how do you feel about the newly published online safety bill, which at the time of recording it came out yesterday? I see you've welcomed the bill, but have also welcomed the opportunity to scrutinise it. Yeah, I think look, I think there's going to be lots to say about the bill, and I haven't been in the House of Lords that long, but I get the sense that their lordships are going to really enjoy scrutinising it and and thinking about how it works, and it'll um I think start life in the, the House of Commons at first. I, I think the step taken to recognise that that fraud is uh, is obviously harmful, um, and that uh, the tech companies, as you say, have that duty to remove uh, fraudulent uh, content um, and to stick to their terms and conditions when they say that they're not going to let fraudsters onto their platforms. Online advertising is going to be an area that we're going to be looking at. Paid for online advertising is now going to be caught. I think that's a big step forward. And we've seen, for example, uh, recently Google, even before the bill was published, has started only carrying adverts from companies that are regulated and authorised by the Financial Conduct Authority. So I think we're going to see that behavioural change coming through, hopefully, amongst the tech uh, platforms. But as I said, fraud obviously goes uh, a lot wider. So I'm pretty sure that's why hearing from those who have been caught up in this is so important. So we can make sure we can test the bill as we're scrutinising it. Will it make a difference to these to people's lives? Um, if they were to be contacted by fraudsters in the future. On a slightly different topic, this month's obviously Women's History Month and only yesterday in the laws we had a debate on International Women's Day. In your previous uh, ministerial life, you were, of course, Minister for Women and Equalities, amongst other things. Last year, you put forward an amendment to the Domestic Abuse Mm. Bill that made it illegal to threaten to release intimate images of someone online. And obviously, the Online Safety Bill also makes cyber flashing an offence. Um, is the UK on the right track for gender equality online? Is there is there more to be done? Sadly, I think there is a lot more to be done. Uh, I think that our online spaces are still too unfriendly uh, to to lots of people, but but women included. I was very pleased to get that amendment through the domestic abuse bill, and I really re- welcome the, the cyber flashing has become uh, an offence. But too often, there's still far too much vicious internet trolling, particularly of women. Often, uh, I think black women or other. You know, ethnic minorities will find that they are particularly uh, targeted. And uh, and so I think the whole, the changing, as I say, that the culture, making the tech platforms responsible for the content of, of what is uh, online uh, and encouraging safety. And I still hear too much, which is if you don't like it, then don't participate. Well, we don't tell women, we shouldn't tell women, not to uh, participate in our public offline spaces. So why would we expect women not to participate online? Um, so I'm afraid I think we have, we, we are, the UK is talking about this. We are on the right track, but we definitely have more to do. And finally, as one of the few members who have answered questions as uh, Secretary of State in both houses, as I'm sure you know, it's quite unusual to be a Secretary of State in the Lords. I think you made your maiden speech, did you not? From I did. Spatchbox answering questions as Secretary yep. of State. So my question is, um, who asked for harder questions? Is it peers or MPs? I love this question. So uh, yeah, I don't know actually how many people have done the uh, answers to questions Spatchbox from both houses. I feel very, very fortunate and privileged to have done so. Uh, their lordships definitely ask the harder questions and they are they're, well, they're often their experts in their subject. Um, and of course, the other thing about the House of Lords is you can't rely on the political knockabout that you can uh, in the uh, House of Commons. That would go down very, very badly uh, amongst their lordships. So, yes, I was always absolutely on my toes and quite glad I wasn't a Secretary of State for too long in the House of Lords, because I think, as I say, the experts were most definitely there and circling. Nikki, Baroness Morgan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Pleasure to be joining you. Thank you.
And next up, here's my interview with Baroness Smith of Basildon, where we talk all sorts of things, women in Parliament, what a typical day as leader of the opposition in the Lords looks like, and surprisingly, Harry Styles. And I apologise in advance for how overexcited I got in that section. Here she is. Hello, I'm Angela Smith, also known as Baroness Smith of Basildon, and I'm Labour's leader in the House of Lords. Angela, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Firstly, could you tell us a little bit about your role as leader of the opposition in the Lords? How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a pretty varied role. I was thinking about this earlier because probably the most important part is being the political lead for the Labour Party with our Labour peers here in the House of Lords. But that involves a number of things. One is managing the business with our chief whip. And there's also a management role of the House. I'm on the House of Lords Commission, Mm -hmm. which all the sort of tedious stuff that nobody really wants to look at, but has to be done. We have to go through. And then also I'm a member of the Shadow Cabinet. So it's the lead for the Labour peers and the Lords. It's the Labour face of the Labour Party here in uh, this end of the building. What does a typical week look like for Leader of the Opposition in the Lords? Probably quite crazy to most people. My mum usually in the morning will say, have a nice day, have you got any meetings today? (laughs) (laughs) And I think, "Mm, yeah, one or two. (laughs) Um, So I tend to get into the office around 8, 8.30. I like only start. The hope is there's a little bit of quiet time, first thing to get some paperwork, go through some emails. I'll be in the chamber I'll have meetings during the morning, um, conversations, phone calls, talking to the staff and people, getting briefed up for what's happening during the day. If I'm involved in legislation, it will be sort of making sure my notes are ready. Yeah, going for questions most days, um, particularly now the pandemic's sort of less aggressive than yet more of us in the chamber. Today, I had a question, for example, not every day I will, but quite often. So every week I'll be speaking in the chamber at some point. It might be a statement in which case we'll have to wait till the Prime Minister sits down before we've got a copy of the statement so we know how to respond to that. There will be meetings to do with the administration of the House of Lords. So I've had two meetings today because there's House of Lords Commission meeting next week. There's a joint commission meeting on Thursday. So we'll be just talking through the agenda and the issues on that. Every day is so varied. I think the thing that's hard at the moment is with the legislation we've got is how late things are going. So some of the fun things I feel I'm missing out on because it was quite nice occasionally friends would pop in for a drink early evening and they'd say hello to them, have something to eat and then you'd go back to work. Now none of that's happening so it's just sort of slogging through often to the early hours of the morning and I tell you it gets pretty hard to get a taxi after midnight. The day's varied, I'm never bored I normally look at the clock about five o'clock-ish and think, where has the day gone? I've still got X, Y to do. And you can see from my notebook, I'm a great list maker. Every day I start with a list of what I have to do. So it just gets longer and longer. It gets longer and longer and less things are ticked off. (laughs) It's uh, it's a bit frustrating. But um, the fascination of this job is working with great people. I like my colleagues a lot. Uh, my Labour group of peers are fantastic. Um, we have a great chief whip and we work together very closely. And um, we have a pretty good staff team. I think they're probably the most experienced staff team in Parliament. And the workload they have is pretty heavy as well. So I think it's that teamwork that makes it worthwhile. 
You were, of course, an MP before joining the House of Lords. You were elected in the uh, 1997 general election, um, which was seen as groundbreaking at the time because the number of uh, women elected doubled to uh, 120 compared to the 1992 election. How do you think life has changed for women in Parliament over the last 25 years? I think in 1997, there were a number of changes that made a difference to Parliament as a whole. Um, I was working here before then, and I saw a really distinct shift from pre-97 to after 97. Part of that was the number of women that were elected. Mm-hmm. You know, you're right, it was groundbreaking in that famous photograph with all the almost 100 um, Labour women that were there. But it was also, because there was such a change in seats, it became a much younger parliament as mm-hmm. well. And it was a Labour parliament, which tended to be a little bit more informal than many of the older Conservatives that had left. So, the, so I think there was a huge cultural change in 1997 at Westminster, which was welcomed by most, was a bit difficult for others. But I think having more women around was part of that. The sad thing was how often the press started talking about what we wore and if we wore a certain kind of nail varnish. Now, I remember having, you know, embarrassing now, had my hair cut by Nikki Clark on Richard mm-hmm. and Judy because it was, you know, all oh, these new Labour women, what are they, what are they like? You know, and getting a hair cut by Nikki Clark wasn't... Yeah a high price to pay for it (laughs) but uh, there was a lot of interest in that and some of it wasn't healthy we were always referred to as the women MPs and I remember very early on having having worked here for a number of years and worked around the building there was a room downstairs opposite roughly where the hairdressers is now that said MPs only so I get elected I want to find out what's behind that door so I trod on down to this room and I go in and there's sort of these cubicles on one side and then simply showers and another room with baths or something and I walked in this man in uniform came running out no you can't come in here you can't come in here he said it's MPs only I am a MP he said no you are a lady MP <laughs> nobody ever uses that awful term now you're just an MP and I think that's one of the shifts. No one thinks being a female and being an MP is unusual. And your counterpart in the government is also a woman, Baroness Evans of Rose Park. However, fewer than a third of members in the Lords are women. Uh, it's just over a third of MPs. Do you think there's still more that needs to be done on representation in Parliament? I think there's a lot to be done in lots of ways. Um, gender is part of it. I also think class is another part. Now, it's all very well having more women MPs, but if they're all from nice middle-class backgrounds, it's not going to change very much. You also have to look at what part of the country people come from, so that geographical mix and have different accents around the place. So LGBT, um, members of the BAME community, there's a whole range of issues where Parliament isn't as representative as it should be. Now, that doesn't mean that as a white woman, I can't represent, you know, a black man, I, you know, they can, we represent interests of the country as a whole. But I think Parliament has to reflect the country as a whole. And if as a whole we fail to do that, I think we lose respect in the country. So there's a lot more to be done. We've made some progress. I have to say in the Labour group, five out of the last six leaders of the Labour group in the Lords have been women, um, which is quite a remarkable achievement, I think, for Labour Lords. And they, they elect their leaders. But yeah, there's a lot more to be done. We've just never let up on this, never let up to try and make a difference and Parliament better represent the country as a whole. And how do you think, you know, we can do that? What, you know, how can we actually make progress? Part of it's down to political parties making those um, choices. You know, when I was selected, it was an Auburn shortlist. And I think a lot of us weren't entirely comfortable with an all-woman shortlist, but we've had all-male shortlists for years and nobody was complaining about them. We had to say, how do we make a difference? And we decided that in half of our key marginal seats, the candidates would be a woman. Mm-hmm. 
And that really just made a cultural shift in politics as a whole. So you have to do things that make a difference, something seismic, something determined. If you really want to make a change, you can. And you recently spoke about members wanting to see good legislation coming out of Parliament, but there's a lot of current bills that are overly complex. Does that sort of shared issue make it easier to work cross-party on legislation? It does with some people, not others. That sounds a bit odd, but what we haven't seen from the government is any willingness to sort of slim this down. I have to say, in all the years I've been in Westminster, in the Commons and now in the Lords, I have never known such a crammed parliamentary so timetable. Yeah, across parties, people are complaining. Now, I left here last night, gone midnight. I've one o'clock on several occasions now, two o'clock in the morning. You're not making the best legislation when you sit at that time. And yet government seems unwilling to recognise that the amount of work they've got to get through in what could be just probably four weeks before the House prorogues and leads into the next session of Parliament is far too much. We can't physically do it unless you say, oh, we sit earlier and we sit late. Now, there's a reason that the times of Parliament as they are, because you want to get the best of people and have the best debates. And the other thing we're seeing from the government is, well, you shouldn't amend this bill because the House of Commons didn't amend it. Well, the fact they only debated about half of it, and we're going through it line by line, or we don't care if you amend it because we'll we'll just chuck it back in when we get to the House of Commons again. And as you saw with the police bill, when the government tried to introduce at the very last minute a whole raft of new clauses that had never been debated or considered in the House of Commons, overwhelmingly peers backed them. And it wasn't just our peers turning out with support from Liberal Democrats were there as well. There were crossbenchers there. It was also Tories going home because they were so unhappy. Obviously, a key role of the House of Lords is, of course, scrutinising legislation. Um, asking the government often to to think again. I wondered if there are any changes to laws that you know you've been a part of that you're particularly proud of. Gosh, where do you start? There was, I think, it was something said about the Canadian Parliament. It was the, ch- the second chamber was the chamber of sober second thought, and we were trying to do that to the government to say, hang on a minute, you can't get everything right first time every time. Just take a step back and think again. So perhaps some of the things I think as a House and as a Labour group we're most proud of is when the government's taken a step back and reconsidered and looked at things again. That's not happening so much now. So when we win something, it's because we've put so much effort in around the House. So I suppose at the moment, the policing bill, I think, was a great example um, of things we did. What we're seeing on the Nationality and Borders Bill, some real common sense amendments that could make a difference. Let's see what the government looks at. You're going to see things come up in the election bill. If I go back to my time in the Commons, I was the first of the 97 intake of MPs to get my own piece of legislation on the statute books, the Waste Minimisation Bill, which seems really modest piece of legislation now, but was groundbreaking at its time. When look at what we're talking about on waste and minimisation rather than just recycling um, what we can, that wasn't happening so much then. So it was uh, quite forward looking. Um, and I sat on the Minimum Wage Committee. So. I think you know, through my time in Parliament, we've done, I think, the legislation I've been involved with. But in the Lords, I think we're just trying sometimes just to rub those raw edges and take the worst aspects of legislation away to try and make it a bit more palatable or just try and make it a bit more credible. So it says it's hard because I could give, you know, I could give you a list of about 100 different amendments we've got over the last few years. Do you think the Lords gets the recognition it deserves for shaping legislation, improving legislation that ultimately ends up on the statute book? No, but I think every politician would say that, <laughs> wouldn't they? 
when I look back, the sort of detailed work that we do is pretty impressive. And I can say that cross-party and sort of trying to sort of be impartial if it's that's possible. But I think the public aren't really aware of it. If the public think of the House of Lords, they think of people in fancy red gowns and well they think it's ermine in my case will always be fake fur anyway um never wear the fur robes which you know i've probably worn about eight times in the years i've been here so that's the image they have um of dozy old blokes you know it's that kind of thing it's quite a lazy role for journalists i was doing a seminar recently um with the institute for government and somebody who was also part of it said you know if you look at all the big legislation that's coming through it's really complex terrible legislation the disadvantages working people etc she said it's really it's against our beliefs but we find the house of lords is much more sympathetic and listens to us and works with us and i thought it was really interesting i said we're not we're not doing anything different to what we've been doing for years and what we have found and the Labour Party conference, we have a little gathering and we do a special reception for voluntary groups, NGOs, campaign organisations. And when I first started those about seven years ago, we get a handful of people turn up who are quite interested. They are packed to the gills now. And I've had complaints. We haven't done it for the last couple of years because of the pandemic. And I've had complaints. When are you doing this again? And they meet our front bench, they meet our back benches, they talk to us about policy and issues. So the people who work with us, I think, appreciate our work. But I think for some of the press, it's much easier to characterise some of the things we do rather than give a full account. Yeah, talking about the sort of media's representation of the Lords, do you, do you think there's more, you know, to do on reform and the issues that we have? There's always more to do on reform. I think Parliament as a whole, we could look at all kinds of ways to reform Parliament. Some of the archaic language makes us you know, look a bit odd and people don't understand that. There's sometimes good reason for it, sometimes there's not. People always look to the House of Lords first of all and say, oh, you've got to elect the House of Lords. Mm-hmm. I'd rather look at a whole and say, what do you want Parliament to do? What's the role of the first primary elected chamber? And what do you want a second chamber to do? And I think decide what you want it to do. My own view is it should be a scrutinising chamber as it is now. And then how do you put people in it? What's the best way to achieve that? And if you were to elect the House... What are the implications for change in the commons that you would have? Could you have two elected houses? All those are possible, but you need to work it out. So I, I never really like those sort of knee-jerk things. Oh, if you do this, everything will be different. Parliament hangs together as a whole. When the government decided and uh, announced it was going to move the House of Lords to York, I think they're quite serious about it. They really believe you can separate the two houses of Parliament. They don't see the interaction between the two. And yet a lot of the work we do, we work so closely with the MPs um, that we need to do that. Indeed, MPs come down and watch our proceedings. You can see behind you a picture there when we had the debates on Brexit. I'm speaking there at the dispatch box and sitting on the steps by the throne is Theresa May um, staring at me. And Bill said she was there to intimidate me. I don't think she was, actually. I think she genuinely wanted to know what was going on. But if she was trying, she failed because I'm not easily intimidated. But, you know, there is an interest between the two houses and we have to operate as a parliament together. But a lot of members, you know, will focus on a particular interest area, a particular cause. Um, is it harder for you to do that as leader of the opposition? Do you have to, you know, sort of, strangely enough, put politics aside sometimes, put your own personal views aside? I think my personal views are so tied up with the role I do. I've never had 
any conflict of interest there or I felt any problem. There's still certain causes that have been close to my heart for many, many years that people now have an interest in and you can't try and persuade me otherwise. Um, and that's another changes. But you do have to take an overall view of so many different parts of legislation. So discovered interest in areas perhaps that I didn't get involved in before that I'm getting more involved in, had to get more involved in. I didn't do much on foreign policy when I was in the House of Commons. I do far more on foreign policy now that I'm leader because I would do the statements that the Prime Minister um, does in the House of Commons. So you expand your interests. So rather than narrowing and pulling back from things you believe in, you just expand the work you've got to do. And you just sort of hope to keep on top of it. So you have to read far more varied um, accounts of different issues and briefings. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So you joined in 1997, so you must have had sort of equal time now in governing party, in the governing party oh, opposition, probably. If I'm, if I'm doing my maths right, <laughs> it's probably about equal. I just wondered what, you know, how life changed when that, during that switchover. But yeah, they're two very different roles. I think the transition um, from government to opposition is quite a tough one. There's the um, famous story of the um, cabinet minister who I shan't name. The joke was always that he sort of saw the car outside, he got outside his house, got into the car, sat down, and then realised there wasn't a driver in front. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose there are things that some people would miss. I think the biggest thing for me from being in government to opposition is you can't make a difference. It's all very well. You can have good debates and you can have a knockabout and you can political attacks and um, engage. But at the end of the day, the only way to do something is to be in government. Mm -hmm. And so to be involved in the levers of power, I, mean, I think the last few years in this country has been the most challenging political time in my lifetime. I think we've had a very badly handled Brexit. Uh, we've had the pandemic. We have war in Ukraine now and what the implications are for... Europe and so in relations in Europe and between countries looking forward. And that's challenging for even the most competent of governments, which you wouldn't be surprised to think I don't think we've got the most competent of governments. But if you're serious about your beliefs and wanting to represent and be part of the government of your country, you want to have a say in those things. So I think one of the difficult things to be in opposition, you haven't got your hands on those levers of powers. You can't affect the kind of change you want. And that's why I think politicians put so much store on winning an election. It's not just sort of a personal thing, oh, yes, we can win like you would a football match. It's because you really believe that's where you can make a difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, it must, yeah, it must be such a sort of frustrating part of your role that you're so close to it and so sort of far away at the same time. Sometimes that is a frustration because you think we'd do that better. Uh, so that does get very frustrating quite a few times. But it's also, I think, for a lot of people, we've got a lot of people now who won't remember the Labour government. Mm -hmm. They're growing up and they've grown up under Conservative governments. And that's quite a challenge for any political party that's been out of power for a long time to say, look, we can do this better, we can govern, this is what we believe in. And I think political parties do go through cycles of how they argue their case and how they make their pitch to people. I think the first thing is honesty. I think it was Howard Wilson used to say, you know, say what you mean and mean what you say. And, you know, it sounds a bit sort of a spin doctorish in some ways, which I think Howard would ever know what a spin doctor was. Um, but it isn't, it's true. You should have that honesty in politics and be very serious about what your beliefs are and how you can put them into practice. On a lighter note. Do you have a favourite moment from your time in Parliament so far, either in the Commons or, or the Lords? I suppose one of them, I'd have to say, was the Theresa May. <laughs> Theresa May came to watch me and I hope that was helpful to her. I also think some of the, the great speeches over time is some people you always went in to hear. And I remember actually curiously being in the gallery and watching Neil Kinnock making 
on amazing speech, and I've seen him in the house doing this. Probably personally for me is making maiden speeches mm-hmm. in both because your first reaction is, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? How did I get to be here? And you stand up with your heart in your mouth for that first moment and then you get into the swing of things. So I think- Did you still have that nervousness in the Lords? I did. Isn't that embarrassing? (laughs) (laughs) I shouldn't really admitted probably. Yeah, I did. And I use an Oscar Wilde quote. People don't often realise I'm a bit of an Oscar Wilde fan. And uh, when I was the Northern Ireland minister, I was able to put the plaque up on his school, which went to which nobody ever done before, which was extraordinary. But um, the Lady Basildon thing comes from an Oscar Wilde player, an ideal husband. There's a character called Lady Basildon. So on Twitter, I'm Lady Basildon because I'm Baroness Smith of Basildon. And having to explain that to um, the House of Lords, where some people thought I was completely mad <laughs> and others thought this might be a bit interesting. But yeah, I don't think you ever lose the nerves. And I think the day you're never nervous about doing anything is the day you've lost your edge. So... I've always got a little bit of nerves, not for questions and things. When you, you know, when there's a really important debate on um, statements on the big political issues of the day, there's a nervousness that, for me, and that's that sort of anticipation that I've got to get this right. People are relying on me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you never completely lose that unless you're really cocky. <laughs> and one of the, the lighter moments here is, you know. Politicians like real celebrities, we're all a bit starstruck and so there's been a stream of people here, but in this office, Harry Styles has been in this office. No! <laughs> and uh, the odd thing about that, he came in to say hello, he was working with Robert Winston's um, son and he came in to say hello, we had a little chat and off he went. And the word went round the building that Harry Styles had been in my office. He didn't, Great, didn't get to me. <laughs> And then he, then he was in the chamber in questions. And um, my local radio station phone said, Angela, you've had Harry Styles in your office. How did you hear? And somebody put it on Twitter and it was going crazy on Twitter. I did an interview with the radio station. What was he like? He was a very nice young man. And he was, yeah, and he was doing that film about the Second World War mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. And uh, so he spoke about that. And they asked me about it on the radio. And what was really odd was how Harry Styles fans love Twitter and love saying people say something nice about him. And I saw during the course of the next 24 hours, my Twitter account be absolutely jammed with retweets about Harry Styles. And I saw it travel around the world. First of all, it was the UK. Then it went to Spain, around <laughs> Europe. Then it was South America. And you just saw these Twitter of Harry Styles fans on my Twitter account um, and jammed it up completely. Um, so that was quite fun. I have to say my favourite ever, though, is Robert Redford. Mm-hmm. when I met Robert Redford. And what's really embarrassing is that my staff said to me, who's Robert Redford? Um, which, but there was, for ladies of a certain age, he's quite a heartthrob. And uh, he was having dinner with David Putnam. And so I just went, stood next to David until he introduced me to Robert Redford. And I was with Jan Royal, who's my predecessor as leader. And uh, David said, no, Bob, you know, call him Robert Redford, Bob, Bob, I'd like you to meet my bosses. This is Jan and Angela. And he held my hand and he said, I wish I had bosses like this, which I inwardly cringed, but still blushed. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) The other person who's been in my office um, was Josh Lyman from West Wing. I sat at my desk, I had a photograph with me and Bradley Whitford at my desk. Um, uh, Frank Skinner came in. Um, you know, it's, it's all famous people that end up in my office. Come down here. I suppose it, it had to make up for it because when I was at Downing Street, 
I was Gordon Brown's PPS. I think someone like David Beckham had been in. And they said, oh, Angela, we forgot to tell you David Beckham was in. I said, don't worry, but if George Clooney turns up, <laughs> you have to give me a call. And they said, OK, we'll do, we promise. Even at a weekend. So even at a weekend, George Clooney turns up and you have to give me a call and I'll be in. So I get in on Monday morning they say, Angela, we wasn't sure if it's cool you or not. <laughs> Hi, George Clooney was here. I said, yeah, yeah. He really was. He didn't call me. So I got Robert Redford, but not George Clooney. (laughs) Angela, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. And that's it for this month's episode of the podcast. Join us next month for more from the UK Parliament's Second Chamber.